Let's pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, uh, for this day and for those who've made it, uh, in spite of all the obstacles, Lord, we do pray for all those running, that you would keep them safe and healthy uh, today. And uh, we thank you especially uh, for Graham being with us uh, um, to talk about art in the Bible. Lord, uh, would you uh, bless our time together and uh, through the inspiration of your Holy Spirit to speak to us in new and profound ways for the sake of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, thanks all for coming um, to uh, this talk, which really is um, going to be led by Graham Betcher, who's over there. Um, Graham is now the uh, deputy director of the Birmingham Museum of Art and also the William Carey Holsey, and there is William Carey Holsey right there, uh, <laughs> curator of American art. Um, uh, before you were the, the senior curator, so now you've got Cur- chief curator, and now he's uh, got a promotion last week or two weeks ago? Uh, announced, what, a week ago? Yeah, yeah, so exciting. Um, and uh, Graham and I met about a year ago or so, uh, just because I've taken an interest since moving here in the museum um, and uh, sort of a, become a little bit of a groupie over there. And we were having lunch and uh, talking about my interest in the arts and intersection of the arts and theology and the church and how that's it is actually kind of a a hot topic right now but when things are a hot topic that means often um, there are some there's some problematic thinking around it so I'm trying to bring in people who are more educated than me uh, to talk about um, some places of intersection and Graham's actually done a lot of thinking about American art that's his um, his place of expertise but through our conversation come to find out a lot of thinking also about uh, biblical and spiritual and religious themes uh, in American historical art, chiefly in the 19th century, I believe, right? Um, and so I'm so glad to have him here, and I'm going to hand it over to him. Uh, oh, before I do that, I wanted to say um, there's a ministry that I kind of head up called the Arts and Culture Series that you might have heard about, and we have several events each year. Um, since you're here, I'm thinking you might be interested in that those kinds of uh, topics. We have a a listserv that's separate for that ministry. If you're interested in learning about events that come up, uh, I promise you won't get too many emails, maybe five or six a year. Um, with, if, does someone have a pen I can borrow, by the way, that I can go around with this? Make sure that gets back to Graham. Um, put your name and uh, email and whatever information you want to leave for us. Thanks. So without further ado, Graham, thank you right. so much for being thank with you. us. And let me hand this over to okay. you as well. going to try to stay out of the way of the screen so but if at some point I'm blocking the screen let me know I'm kind of a I make a better better wall than a window so Um, my talk today is entitled seeking the spiritual in American art faith communion and transcendence And you're probably wondering why I'm showing you a painting of the interior of a forest, because that really doesn't scream religious art to most people. Uh, And uh, I hope by the time I'm done uh, this morning, you'll get a sense of why for uh, most Americans in the 19th century, that painting represented a uh, pure expression of religious devotion. Um, 
it may surprise you to learn that despite our country's uh, Judeo-Christian roots, there's surprisingly little in the way of religious art in the history of American art. And there's a very, very good reason for this. Think about who our country's earliest settlers were. The Puritans. Do Puritans like imagery very much? No, not so much. They're more or less uh, an iconoclastic group. Uh, images were seen as vain. Uh, think of uh, think of the sort of prohibition on vanities of all sorts, and so Puritans were known for their austere way of life, their austere dress, no jewelry. They dressed in in black. Uh, they did not surround themselves with finery of any sorts, and this also included image images. What few images one does find uh, from the Puritans are the odd portrait here and there. Where you do find uh, religious imagery in early American art, really you find in the 18th, beginning in the 18th century and into the early 19th century. And it is uh, done by the hands of artists who were academically trained uh, and often working for uh, royal patrons. Uh, and I, now this might strike you as odd. How, you know, how can we have Americans? You know, this is America. We broke with England. How can you have, uh, Americans working for royal patrons? Well, uh, one of the leading American, uh, painters, a man named Benjamin West, who was born in Pennsylvania, uh, left this country and went to work for none other than King George III. And he ascended to one of the highest positions that an artist could hold at court, which was official court history painter to King George III. There was a, a loose hierarchy in painting uh, at that time. And I say loose hierarchy because uh, it was never really, you know, spelled out that, you know, oh, if you painted miniatures, you were down here. And if you, you know, painted, uh, you know, still lifes, you were kind of up, up on this rung. But suffice it to say, because history painters enjoyed robust uh, patronage uh, from uh, the court, uh, it was something to aspire to. And so Benjamin West, this Pennsylvania-born man, became the official court history painter uh, to King George III, and many of his English-born counterparts uh, were quite jealous of that fact. And he became known for these massive uh, history paintings uh, that this is uh, 200 by 260 inches wide. It's Christ rejected uh, from the book of John. Uh, he sent these uh, for exhibition. Some of them were exhibited back in the United States uh, and shown at the Royal Academy. Uh, he became president of the Royal Academy. So eventually his uh, English colleagues sort of got over their jealousy and accepted uh, him as one of uh, their own but he straddled uh, the art world on both sides of the, the pond, as it were. Uh, and these uh, paintings that I'm showing you here, Death on the Pale Horse uh, of 1817, now in the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Art, these paintings were not, um, were not biblical paintings as such, uh, or rather I should say, they were not really painted as devotional images, the way that an altarpiece is painted. They were painted as history paintings. Um, now that's not to say that some people didn't take a um, a uh, devotional message 
from them. Let's go back for a second to Christ Rejected. Uh, none other than Jane Austen viewed this painting when it was uh, shown in London. And she said, I have seen West's famous painting and I prefer it to anything of the kind I ever saw before. It is the first representation of our Savior, whichever at all contented me. Um, others uh, were sort of less moved by the painting. Gilbert Stewart, who went on to uh, paint uh, several well-known images of George Washington, said that all Benjamin West cares about are his 10-acre paintings replete with saints and sinners, end quote. Uh, but these were in many ways no different than the other types of history paintings that Benjamin West was known for, such as the one you can walk down the street and see at the Birmingham Museum of Art. Erastostratus, the physician, discovers the love of Antiochus for Stratonici, which was shown at the Royal Academy of Art in 1772, which is a, a uh, scene from uh, ancient uh, history. And then also a, a scene of American history, Penn's Treaty with the Indians, also of 1772, uh, Penn striking his, uh, his accord with the Lenny Lenape. Now, there were other uh, artists, uh, American artists, uh, who painted religious subjects uh, other than Benjamin West, uh, notably Charles Wilson Peale, who also, uh, I already mentioned Gilbert Stewart, uh, like Stewart, Peale became known for his portraits of the founding fathers. Uh, George Washington uh, did several portraits of Washington as well. Uh, this is Noah and his Ark of 1827. Uh, and... You have to know a little bit about uh, Charles Wilson Peale to know exactly why he might have painted this uh, work. I don't think it's because Peale was so interested in the Bible or Christianity in general. He was interested in science and taxonomy and categorizing the natural world. And I want to call your attention to the fact, of course, based on the book of Genesis, uh, and you see the attention that he's given to all the various animals, and see the turkey in the foreground, so the American world is included uh, in the animals that uh, Noah has brought on his ark. Well, this is Charles Wilson's own portrait. We have the turkey in the foreground. This is Peel's own museum. He was one of, he was one of the uh, first American museum curators. He built his own museum, uh, and uh, he his goal really was to have uh, one, rather than two in the case of Noah, but one of every example of uh, the uh, animals of North America to show to his visiting public. So he was, in some ways, a secular uh, American Noah. This brings us to Thomas Cole, and Thomas Cole is, will be uh, an individual about whom we speak uh, at some length uh, this morning. Uh, Thomas Cole was an English-born American artist, uh, and he be, is best known as the father of the Hudson River School. He and his compatriots went out uh, initially into the Hudson River Valley in New York, and then later further afield into the Berkshires and into the White Mountains of New Hampshire and elsewhere. And he was really the first American artist to, sh to prove that the American landscape was something truly worthy of uh, committing to canvas with paint. Um, early on in his career, however, he did do several religious subjects, uh, notably 
uh, the Garden of Eden in 1828. And that same year, and these were intended to be hung side by side, the expulsion uh, from the Garden of Eden. What I love about the expulsion from the Garden of Eden is how the painting is cleft in half by this rock formation. And you've got this sort of cathedral arch here. And you can see it's very difficult in this image, obviously, but uh, Adam and Eve are walking through this arch. They're being cast out. And so you've got paradise uh, over here, and then they're walking through and into this you know, dark, cruel world. And in the foreground, uh, there's a uh, wolf ripping apart a stag in the foreground. You can't really see it in this image. It's too small. You can see the volcanic eruption. And so to give a sense of the violence and fury of the, the imperfect world into which they're being uh, cast uh, because, uh, because they've uh, disobeyed God's, God's command. Now, this brings us to the American landscape. Uh, Thomas Cole was a fervent believer that, in fact, uh, Americans lived in a new Eden, uh, a, play, a, a sort of latter-day uh, paradise. Uh, and it's interesting that in some of his uh, paintings, he in, includes a, a similar sort of uh, notch or a, a, a indention in the rock, so you can sort of see it here. And this is an actual um, uh, topographical uh, feature, Crawford Notch up in New Hampshire. But you can see this sort of uh, you know, world on one side, but we are on, we are on the paradise side. You, know, you can see that it's being settled. And granted, you know, it doesn't look completely inviting, but it looks a little more inviting than what's on the other side, this sort of large stone edifice. I think you see... Um, you see the idea of an American paradise a little bit more um, when you consider the next painting, Early Autumn, which was painted on the Cats, uh, Catskill Creek uh, in the Hudson River Valley in 1836. And this is a really lush, verdant paradise. And consider this uh, in light of something that Thomas Cole wrote the very same year he painted this. He wrote, nature has spread for us a rich and delightful banquet. Shall we turn from it? We are still in Eden. The wall that shuts us out of the garden is our own ignorance and folly. We are still in Eden. And that's, and that's something that really carries through his entire career. When you look at the things he painted, and often his works are bathed in sort of a, a natural, uh, this you know, warm light, suggesting the presence of God in the American landscape. This brings us uh, to a student of uh, Thomas Cole, a man named Asher B. Durand. And the year after Thomas Cole died in 1848, Asher B. Durand painted this work entitled Kindred Spirits, which now lives in Arkansas, at Alice Walton's museum, Crystal Bridges. Um, this painting was meant to uh, m not only um, memorialize uh, Thomas Cole, uh, who we see here on the right, but to um, also uh, celebrate uh, a very important poet uh, in the 19th century, a man named William Cullen Bryant. William Cullen Bryant uh, was uh, one of the leading pantheists in the 19th century. And a, a pantheist being someone who believed that 
that God was resident in all things natural. And he expressed that in his poetry. And among his most famous poems was a poem entitled A Forest Hymn, which he wrote in 1824. And the, and the first passage of that poem reads, The groves were God's first temples, ere man learned to hew the shaft and lay the architrave and spread the roof above them, ere he framed the lofty vault to gather and roll back the sound of anthems in the darkling wood. Amidst the cool and silence, he knelt down and offered to the mightiest solemn thanks and supplication. So offering solemn thanks and supplication in the groves. God's first temple. So the idea of, of worshiping God in the forest, that's key to what William Cullen Bryant believed, that you went out into nature to worship God. This isn't paganism. These guys aren't druids. This is the Christian God that they are worshiping in the forest. And so in, in kindred spirits, that's exactly what we see going on. We see uh, Thomas Cole here on the right, William Cullen Bryant on the left, and this commemorates a trip that they took to the Catskill Mountains together in 1840, a sketching trip where they basked in the, in the glory of God through his natural works. And on, on a similar trip, not that same trip, uh, uh, Thomas Cole wrote about the experience that he had looking out on the same view at Cat's, uh, on uh, Catterskill Clove, and he uh, wrote, in gazing on the pure creations of the Almighty, one feels a calm religious tone steal through his mind, and when he is turned to mingle with his fellow men, the chords which have struck, been struck in the sweet communion cease not to vibrate. Struck in the sweet communion. This is, a, this is a key key aspect of uh, their belief system, idea of communing with God through nature. Now, one thing I wanted to, to mention, and any of you who saw my Facebook post last night have already seen this image. I did a little uh, social media advertising. Uh, this is the frontispiece for the 1860 edition of A Forest Hymn, uh, the poem by William Cullen Bryant. This concept of the groves being God's first temples started to become uh, a sort of uh, trope in 19th century art and visual culture to the extent that you see uh, paintings of forest interiors that look like Gothic cathedrals. Uh, this illustrator, John Howes, has taken it a step further and he's just gone ahead and juxtaposed a stone Gothic arch over a forest, sort of taking taking this one step further. Now, speaking of sort of stone arches, I want to I don't want to give you the sense that the Hudson River School artists were the only artists who sort of took the point uh, a, that America was a a new Eden and linked uh, linked uh, America. Uh, to the idea of uh, a natural or a, sort of a new paradise. Um, that uh, was also found in the work of Edward Hicks, who was a Quaker artist. He was known for his paintings of the Peaceable Kingdom, which, uh, of course, comes from the Book of Isaiah. Um, he painted this subject, I think, 62 individual times. 
Um, those of you who have spent any time in Virginia will recognize that structure in the background. Anyone? Natural the Natural Bridge, right? And you see it appear in a number of his paintings of the Peaceable Kingdom. So here we have the very literalized, uh, literalized, uh, depiction of the the peaceable kingdom we've got the the lion and the lamb and the child actually children maybe not you know didn't totally stick to the letter uh, of the uh, passage uh, but in the background he's included Penn's treaty with the Lenny Lenape so tying it into American history he was a Quaker after all as was William Penn um, so a little bit of Quaker history but then the the natural uh, bridge. Uh, and, and here we see it in a painting of the 19th century, and here we see it today. Um, and so this is, this is significant because it is, uh, and just another uh, bit of evidence that artists were very much thinking about America as linked to, um, the concept of, uh, a new, new Eden. We also see this in the work of Frederick Edwin Church, another Hudson River School painter. Um, now, this is uh, one work that used to be in Jack Warner's collection down in Tuscaloosa, Moses Viewing the Promised Land, uh, painted in 1846. Uh, so a, a biblical uh, image of, uh, you know, kind of dis discovery and, and, and providence. But this is an American scene of discovery and providence. This is uh, also painted the same year, 1846. This is Thomas Hooker and his party uh, basically finding the American promised land, finding the spot on which he would found the Hartford uh, colony. And uh, Thomas Hooker uh, was an ancestor of Frederick Edwin Church, so he felt a personal connection to this subject. Uh, but as I mentioned that one would find in Cole's works, we also find in Church's works uh, this beautiful golden light. You know, the idea that uh, Thomas Hooker's discovery of this perfect spot upon which to, to found a colony uh, was all uh, divinely ordained. Now, to show you a few examples of what I previously alluded to of the sort of forest cathedral, I give you Asher B. Duran's masterwork in the woods of 1855, which some of you may have seen in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And you can see how the uh, crossing of the uh, tree branches forms a sort of natural Gothic arch. Uh, according to legend, the Gothic style comes from, uh, comes from the crossing of two uh, tree branches uh, and was noted, sort of noticed by the ancient uh, Teutonic tribes. It's a, it's a sort of uh, apocryphal story. I don't, uh, there's not much truth to it, but it, people did hotly debate this uh, theory in the uh, beginning in the 18th century and many people uh, believed it through the 19th century. And then you can even see this uh, example at the Birmingham Museum of Art. This is an example of the same phenomenon by a student of Asher B. Durand, a woman named Mary Josephine Walters. Uh, and this painting used to hang in the downtown uh, club's collection, uh, painted in the 1860s. This brings us uh, to another uh, really uh, important work uh, in the Birmingham Museum of Art's collection, Albert Bierstadt's Looking Down the Yosemite Valley of 1865, uh, which uh, in many ways functions as a natural cathedral. 
uh, and uh, is written about in the 19th century as such over and over and over again. I think it was Teddy Roosevelt who on a camping trip there uh, said that it was more glorious than any of the cathedrals he had seen by man's creation. Um, it was John Muir uh, who probably wrote more lines about this valley than any other man. Not surprising since uh, John Muir is the individual who we widely credited uh, credit for saving uh, and preserving this uh, uh, this natural wonder. He was uh, the founder of the Sierra Club and, and one of the uh, fathers, great fathers of the American uh, conservation movement. In a letter to his brother in 1870, he wrote, This glorious valley might well be called a church for every lover of the great creator who comes within the broad, overwhelming influences of the place fails not to worship as they never did before. The glory of the Lord is upon all God's works. It is written plainly upon all the fields of every clime and upon every sky. End quote. And Muir went on to say on another occasion, by far the grandest of all the special temples of nature I was ever permitted to enter, the sanctum sanctorum of the Sierra. So this, this idea, I mean, this runs through the lion's share of the 19th century, that nature functioned um, as a a, as a, a natural cathedral, a place where one went to worship God in his creations. And again, we see this glorious light. We are looking, in fact, at a, at a uh, sunset. We're looking due west. Uh, and I guess adding a little, um, you know, sort of bit of punctuation to the point of, uh, you know, looking at spaces like these as sort of natural cathedrals, let's not forget that these are called the cathedral rocks here on the left-hand side of the valley. Now for something completely different in the words of Monty Python. Um, I want to bring this into the, well, not quite the present day, but at least the, you know, the modern, let's say modern times. Uh, and show you how so this is played out uh, in the 20th century. Um, there's a, a place that I visited recently. It was my second visit, visit there, and it's the Rothko Chapel, uh, which was uh, commissioned uh, by the uh, de Menils, a uh, wealthy couple who were major art patrons uh, in Houston, Texas. Uh, and they... Uh, engaged uh, Mark Rothko, the painter, and initially uh, Philip Johnson uh, to design a non-denominational uh, chapel that would be a space, space for worship, private contemplation, meditation, and um, for uh, discussion of issues uh, pertaining to world peace and unity. And it was really, it's widely uh, discussed as one of the first spaces of his, of its kind in the world with that as its expressed goal. Uh, this is what it looks like on its interior. I can't show you a 360 view, but you'll have to imagine that these uh, triptychs and uh, single uh, paneled images by Mark Rothko go all the way around the room and there's a beautiful 
skylight above that casts this sort of filtered light around the entire room. And then there are these simple, four simple benches that one sits on and you can either face in and talk to one another or you can look out and contemplate uh, the individual works. The individual works look pitch black in the image, but in fact they're not. They've got lots of rich texture and they're deep purples and reds and browns and black, um, but there is this sort of, if they, the overall effect when you're standing in front of them is this sort of ethereal haze in a way. You somewhat see it a little more um, here. But I submit to you that this is maybe uh, modern art's attempt um, at something close to what the painters of the 19th century were trying to capture. No, this isn't, this isn't a forest, but it, it's, it gives you the same effect. I mean, looking out, looking out on the sky or being, being created, being surrounded by a forest, um, looking out on a kind of golden sunset, it, it gives you that sense of being enveloped and being enveloped by something greater than oneself. And I think that that's really at the, the core of what uh, the 19th century artists, the Hudson River School artists and some of the other artists I discuss, um, what moved them is that when you're in nature, you feel quite small in relation to God's works. You're, 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 just, you're just a speck in relation to the firmament, to the forest. I mean, and I can only imagine that John Muir or Teddy Roosevelt, when they were in the middle of the Yosemite Valley, that they must have just felt like a speck when they looked up at everything around them. And so I think you get a sense of that here, and I know you do because I've experienced it recently myself, that when you're standing before this painting and you look into it, you just feel quite small when confronted with its vastness. The edges disappear. And I'm going to kind of take it back even further, and we're going to jump across the Atlantic to show you an um, early example of a very similar phenomenon, and not an American phenomenon, but an example of the work of uh, Caspar David Friedrich, who was a German romantic painter. And I actually wrote my master's thesis on, um, it was on uh, looking at the common ties between the American Hudson River School and the German romantic painters uh, and their common uh, belief in God and nature. Uh, this painting, Monk by the Sea, uh, when it was first exhibited in Berlin in 1810, uh, much of what the critics commented on is just how vast it seemed that the edges of the frame seemed to disappear and that this you know tiny monk at the edge of the sea seemed even tinier in relation to this incredible you know incredibly vast sky and this black black sea that seemed to stretch on for miles and miles and miles almost you know infinitely and so i think that that you know if you juxtapose it with this image, and I wish I had sort of put them side by side, in terms of you know, in terms of what they're both trying to achieve, it's really quite similar. Um, the sense of the the smallness smallness of man uh, when faced with the, the greatness of God's creation. So I'm happy to answer any questions you might have.
All right. The one with the natural bridge, mm-hmm. so the, when you had the picture next to the painting was so fascinating, the attention to detail. This one or, no, or that one? No, 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 it's just two more back, I think. Yeah. Oh. The attention to detail yeah. was fascinating. I can't help but to think of the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. So I was curious, like, were they influenced by them? Was this happening at the same time? And then my other question is, was there like an interior feeling with American artists because we didn't have these huge, wonderful buildings, you know, monumental buildings to worship in. So they were really glorifying nature, um, saying like, well, we don't have these old cathedrals, but we have this beautiful landscape. Or was that happening, or was this sort of like what was in vogue, like this attention to nature? Or not in vogue, but you know what I'm saying. Was it sort of what people were doing and painting that? Well, two excellent questions. The answer to your first question is um, both the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood and the American Hudson River School and the sort of second generation of Hudson River School artists were influenced by the same major English art critic, theorist, and artist, and that's John Ruskin. Uh, John Ruskin uh, believed that that yeah, John John Ruskin believed that every for a work of art to be worth its salt, it needed to show evidence of labor. Uh, he he too also believed that there was that that God was resident in in nature. So that also I think fits in very very nicely his his own personal um, convictions, but. He also uh, thought he he went so far as to sort of command artists to articulate every leaf, every blade of grass. In fact, there's sort of a uh, catchphrase to sum up American Ruskinianism or, or English Ruskinianism, and that's every blade of grass is sacred. And I think where you really see that is in this painting by... Josephine Walters, she's definitely a Ruskinian. You can see every leaf of every, every lichen, every leaf of every, uh, you know, plant, uh, every, you know, blade of grass, every, you know, just it, the detail is excruciating, I think is even the word. And then the next question about, I, I, that has been much discussed is because we don't have, in this country, there are very few sort of, large man-made edifices, is that why Americans then turn to, uh, American artists in particular, then turn to depicting our natural edifices? And I do think that there's um, something there, especially when you consider that Thomas Cole was uh, trained as an architect. Some people, A lot of people don't realize he uh, designed the Ohio State Capitol. Um, or at least the, the beginnings of the Ohio State Capitol. And so, and did a very famous painting called The Architect's Dream, which shows every single style of architecture you can imagine from the Egyptian pyramids to the cathedrals to neoclassical temples. Um, so these huge mountains, um, and, you know, rocky outcroppings and great forests and trees did sort of, uh, serve uh, serve as stand-ins uh, for a ma- the man-made edifices of, of Europe, and um, and then you have uh, I and that's kind of what I wrote my master's thesis on. In Europe, you have actual ruins of ancient civilizations and ruins of monasteries that people like Caspar David Friedrich 
painted and Americans um, painted sort of natural uh, ruins, trees that, you know, kind of fell over in the forest and showing evidence of the passage of time um, because we had, we weren't, didn't yet have, uh, you know, the passage of, of uh, a you know, great civilization save for Native American um, civilizations, which some artists did, did depict. So... Yeah. Just you're in the midst of all this wonder in nature. Well, going back to Thomas Cole, the only thing that's preventing us from realizing that we're in Eden is our own ignorance and folly. So, other questions? I'm going to ask the last question. Yeah. Selfishly. No, it's time to... <laughs> You know, I, one of the things I wrestle with a lot is American sentimentality with respect to Christianity and uh, Christian attempts at art sort of being a derivative of something else, perhaps. And I wonder if any of, like, some of this kind of stuff um, is in the background of someone like who you've thought about as Warner Solomon uh, or, or Kincaid at all. Uh, definitely in the background of Thomas Kincaid. I mean, he was definitely looking at the the Hudson River School artists. I think it's you know, it's all what you do with it. I mean, there's a there's an idea. There's this uh, famous essay by uh, Jean Baudrillard called Simulacra and Simulation, and it's the idea. It's almost like making a uh, Xerox copy over and over and over again, but rather than copying the original, you copy the copy, then copy the copy of the copy, then copy the copy of the copy of the copy, and so forth and so on. Pretty soon, the copy of the copy of the copy of the copy becomes so faded and indistinct when compared with the original that it's a pale, pale copy of the original. It's it's just it's it's really inferior to the original. So I I mean my personal view is that. Thomas Kincaid, yes, there is some kind of core, you know, maybe inspiration from the Hudson River artists, but he, it's so derivative and it's, it's kind of a, it's a, you know, kind of a copy after a copy after a copy that it's, uh, it, it, it ceases to be as, as meaningful, um, as the original. That's my opinion. I know some people really enjoy Thomas Kincaid's work. Um, I, I don't, and art historians are having to take it seriously now. There have been two uh, sessions at the College Art Association uh, on his work. Um, I think probably the day that the Birmingham Museum of Art accessions a work uh, by him is the day I retire. So. <laughs> well, on that note, <laughs> um, and someone uh, uh, who's also actually written about and thought about Thomas Kincaid is going to come and be with us in a couple of few weeks, a Latin speaker... Dan Seidel, who's actually a curator, art historian, and theologian. Uh, not only will he be speaking at the Lenten series, but he's going to do two events with us as part of the Arts and Culture series. We'll have a panel discussion here in the refectory Wednesday, March 2nd. And actually, um, Graham's colleague will be part of the, the panel. Uh, Horace uh, Ballard's the new curator of education. Stephen Watson, who's a professor of um, three-dimensional art at Samford University in Iowa, having a we're having a discussion with Dan about 
theology and art. And then the very next day, uh, Thursday, uh, March 3rd, uh, we're going to the Ava Gallery at UAB across the street from Alice Stevens, where they're currently exhibiting uh, small paintings of Enrique Martinez Zelaya, uh, who's a modern artist. Um, and uh, so whereas we've looked at uh, more classical academic stuff here, we'll be looking more at modern and contemporary art then uh, with Dan Saddell and intersections of uh, faith and, and, and artwork. So uh, please come to us. Uh, I'm really excited about having him here in town for that. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. And thank you, Graham. Thank you.